Hey, everyone out there, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. It is officially 2024, and that's pretty crazy because boy, how time flies. And that doesn't mean just a new year and new year resolutions, but new policies sometimes. And I think one of the biggest new policies that hits and kind of comes into action every January is the new CMS physician schedule. Now, it sounds kind of drab um, because emergency medicine is a lot of things. It's art, it's science, it's excitement, it's a lot of fun. But some of the realities of medicine are unavoidable and something we need to all be aware of as, you know, bedside doctors. And that's unfortunately things like billing rules. Now, I didn't learn anything about billing, really. Nothing, nothing practical, at least, during residency. But since I've been attending it gets really, really important. Now, every year in the summer, CMS releases its draft physician fee schedule, and this generally has two major things. One is it has all of the RVU values, which is negotiated by the RUC, which is the AMA committee, what called the RVS Update Committee, where different specialties negotiate their different RVU values for their usual CPTs. That gets released with the physician fee schedule, as well as the CMS RVU conversion rate, which is the dollar amount that Medicare values for each RVU. So this dollar amount, traditionally in you know the mid $30 for RVU-ish, is something that has been unfortunately trending down and affects everyone in medicine because Medicare sets the baseline for all reimbursements. So this is a lot to keep track of, but I think it's really important um, to everyone from the in the trenches doc, especially if you're on a productivity model, to of course, physician leaders and business leaders, because it's really how you establish the solvency of your group. And especially with last year's many changes in how emergency medicine is practiced from a corporate structure, everything from publicly traded companies to private equity backed companies, to debt laden companies, to democratic groups that are you know moderate to high size, to small democratic groups, um, to in-house now with hospitals. This all has different impact and it makes it a lot more important for physicians to all be aware of. So it is very opaque, no doubt about it. So we are super lucky to be joined by a true expert on all things reimbursement and a emergency medicine physician, Dr. Michael Granovsky, to chat more about it. Hey everyone at ASAP Now, thanks again for joining us this month. So it is January and with January is the new CMS uh, fee schedule. And I think there's no better expert to come chat with us about this than Dr. Michael Granovsky, who is president of Logix Health. Um, now, Granovsky has been a great partner of ASAP Now. He has an article this month featuring a lot of the things that we'll be talking about, um, but I very much encourage you to check out all of his other work with ASAP, including the reimbursement conference, because he is a wealth of knowledge. So Mike, thanks again so much for joining us. Hey, Amy, thank you. 
Now, now I want to just kind of jump right in. Like you and I kind of know know each other in our professional lives with Logics and um, in my company. Um, and again, I find you to be a wealth of knowledge. I would love if you would just kind of set the stage on what's your overall feel about the new CMS rules that went into place this this year? Like, is it good? Is it bad? Is it ugly for EM? Like, what's your thoughts on it? Amy, thanks so much. And that's certainly a topic that's on everybody's mind. And I think one of the things that we're all thinking about is here we stand now 13 months into these brand new documentation guidelines and how are they playing out? And then does the fee schedule that was just released change some of our perspective there? And if we look at the way the documentation guidelines, which were part of last year's fee schedule, uh, played out, what we saw was over time, groups that were really able to get engaged, have some coding expertise, update their EHRs with informatics experts like, like you, they saw a little bit of a transition from threes to fours, their fives remained stable. Maybe their critical care, interestingly, went up a little bit just because everybody was very engaged in the education process. And the guidelines have been overall a net RVU positive for emergency medicine. And that makes sense because one of the big changes was a level three, the medical decision-making became a lot less complex. It actually went down sort of one level of intensity and that caused a lot of threes to move to fours. And then with the extra elbow grease with updating your EHR and engaging physicians with education, you were able to maintain your, your level fives. Now, as we move into 2024, some of the things that we look at when the fee schedule comes out are our RVUs. And the biggest component of our RVUs are the work RVUs. And ASAP and emergency medicine are very, very lucky to have a dedicated and supremely well-led relative value update committee team that includes professionals within the Dallas office, support from the DC office, even an ASAP board member who's involved and some expert physicians who spend really 15 to 20 days a year on the road, making sure that they're attending meetings and representing organized emergency medicine. Our work RVUs have remained stable going from 2023 to 2024. And that's really good news because we got small updates in 2020, in 2021, and we've been able to maintain those updates, even though there was a little bit of inbound fire from the organized house of medicine looking to decrease perhaps our level fours, which is now the most commonly reported code. And we were able to hold that off and keep the RVU stable. And really, if you look at the overall relative values, number of RVUs for levels one, two, three, four, and five, they're essentially unchanged going from 2023 to 2024. There are tiny little changes at the one one hundredth of an RVU. So we're talking about pennies on the dollar related to perhaps a tiny change in practice expense or liability insurance. So the RVUs are stable. There has been a big concerted effort to protect them. And that's been successful in this transition from 2023 to 2024. I'll pause there, see if there's any reflection on the RVUs, and then we're gonna go to the bigger headwind, which is the conversion factor, what Medicare pays per RVU. Um, any thoughts about RVUs or additional information that would be helpful? No, I think, you know, that's kind of my read on it too, is like they're, I mean, they, they threw us a huge change, 
like, you know, God bless that we're all documenting about social determinants and things we considered but didn't do now. I mean, I think that's pretty rote memory for most ER doctors at this point. But, you know, while we lobby, of course, for our specialty, which is our RVUs, yeah, I'm always fascinated that at the end of the day, you know, the house of medicine issue, the RVU conversion, kind of keeps going down despite inflation, a lot of other things. Um, so I, 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 I tend to be a pessimist um, when it comes to CMS and reimbursement, but I, I would love to hear your opinion yeah, on the greater conversion factor. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. That's a really important topic. And it is the one piece of negative news I think that we'll cover. Everything else is generally positive and trending in a, in a good direction. And just to set the, the stage a little bit, all the way back in 1997, we had the Balanced Budget Act, and that gave rise to a very tough formula to determine the Medicare physician fee schedule conversion factor, what Medicare pays for each RVU, called the Sustainable Growth, growth Rate Formula. And the Sustainable Growth Rate Formula dictated that increases in Medicare spending had to keep up with the tax base. And that was impossible because GDP contracted several times since 1997. We had the dot-com bust in 1999. We had the financial crisis in 2008. And by the time you got to 2010, the sustainable growth rate formula dictated a payment per RVU that would be 15, 18, 20, 22% lower than what we're seeing today. And those of us in the advocacy world, we would go up to Capitol Hill, hat in hand, talking about the safety net, talking about the importance of the US healthcare system. And we would get a little patch for one year that would cover that 15 or 18% deficit. And it became so ridiculous because the gap between what the SGR formula dictated and the patch that we were asking for eventually got to over 20%. And in 2015, Medicare did away with the sustainable growth rate formula. And they passed the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act called MACRA. And they brought us a brand new way of looking at the Medicare conversion factor, which has been very good up until 2021. In 2021, the office code RVUs went up a lot. And unfortunately, they went up so much that they tripped a guardrail called budget neutrality. And budget neutrality dictates that if RVU increases cause the Medicare overall expenditures to go up over $20 million, the entire conversion factor impacting the whole house of medicine, except for anesthesia, which has their own conversion factor, gets pushed down. And what happened is the office code RVUs, they went up 18, 20, 22%, depending on the code. And that caused the conversion factor to go down 10, 11, 12%. We then got a little bit of a patch from Congress in 2021, a small patch in 2022, a small patch in 2023, but we've never really gotten out from the overhang of this budget neutrality factor that came out in 2021. This year, what we're seeing is a conversion factor that is actually going down 3.4%. And it's $32 and roughly 73 cents is what was published in the Medicare final rule. And when I started practicing in the late 90s, we had a conversion factor of 35 or $36. So think about it. We've had steady upward inflation from 1995 to 2000 to 2010 to 2024. 
and the conversion factor has gone from $36 down to about $32 and change. So the house of medicine is going in the opposite direction of all the other inflationary costs. And if you look at not the physician component within medicine, but for instance, the hospital components, they get little inflation updates every single year. The outpatient hospital, the actual facility in your emergency department, they've got an inflationary adjustment of two and a half, three, three and a half percent every year. And their conversion factor since the year 2000, it's gone up over 80%. Well, if we had experienced that, we'd have a conversion factor of over $70. And here we are looking at a $32 conversion factor. And we're talking today in late January, and Congress has yet to give Medicare any additional money to increase the conversion factor for 2024. We may get a little patch in March when the next continuing resolution that causes the uh, congressional government process to sort of keep the wheels turning and keep the government open takes place but we don't think it's going to be two three four five percent it might be one maybe two percent and if it takes place in march we'll already have sort of january and february claims processed at this very low conversion factor of 32 dollars and change so definitely a, a headwind that doesn't seem to have an easy solution yet yeah, and it's tough because, I mean, you mentioned advocacy in the article and like looking at the conversion factor, like in 2020, it was $36, then it went to 34, then it went to 34 and I think less change, then it went to 33, and now it's like 32. Um, from an advocacy perspective, is there anything ER doctors can do? I know you're super involved with ASAP. ASAP's obviously part of this as well as the AMA because it is a house of medicine issue, but any thoughts there? Yeah, that's a really important way to focus on things. And there are several bills in front of Congress. The one that has the most traction right now is HR 2474. It's called the Strengthening Medicare for Patients and Providers Act. And it would link the Medicare conversion factor to a medical economic index or some kind of consumer inflationary factor that generally goes up two, three, four percent a year. So it actually link the conversion factor for physicians appropriately to some inflationary adjustment. And it's had initially 30, 40, 50, we're up to almost 80 sponsors of that bill. And there are a couple of physicians in Congress, and that's a really big asset for us and a big lever. Uh, Representative Raul Ruiz, who actually is an emergency physician, mm -hmm. uh, Larry Bouchon, Amy Barra, and Marionette Miller-Meeks, who are strong advocates for moving the conversion factor in a direction where it's linked to inflation. So write your congressperson. Uh, if anybody wants to know exactly, hey, I want a simple link to go to, ASAP actually has one available through the DC office. You could contact myself or you could contact Amy and we'd be happy to put you in touch with the right direction. And we need to have our voices heard we're getting closer. This will not be the 2024 Congress will not be the one that passes a Medicare conversion factor linked to inflation, but it could happen in a couple of years if we all continue to be organized, continue to make sure our voices are heard. Yeah, and getting involved with things like ASAP Lobby Day. You know, as a medical student, I actually got to intern in uh, Dr. Grease's office, which was like mind blowing, actually, how 
Congress works. So I encourage um, you know anyone listening to look for those opportunities again. ASAP is a great pipeline to get involved. Um, now, now kind of back to this year's um, new PFS. I did think there were two components that were extremely important to the practice of emergency medicine, with the first being split and shared services with APPs. Now, now I want to defer to you the summary of the change and thoughts on it, because I remember maybe a couple years ago when CMS came out with their draft uh, PFS, and they had basically said that, you know, APP versus attending uh, shared visits would be defined purely on time. And I remember thinking like, wow, no one's gonna have over 50% of the time on an APP patient. But you know, that's since revised, and I would love to hear kind of your summary, your expert thoughts on this and what it really means for emergency medicine this year. Yeah, that's a really sentinel change in the fee schedule. And we were able to hold off the definition of a shared visit being the physician or APP that provided the majority of clinical care time as the standard. And I personally had a conversation with CMS where I went through a very typical shift on a Monday, 3 to 11, in a community hospital, 40,000 visits. You might have a doc that is carrying six to eight patients of their own. You've got seven to eight patients arriving by hour um, for triage. You've got two APPs, you're running a fast track, you might have patients in chairs if it's a busy day and you're still boarding patients from the weekend. And you would have maybe two or three patients for each of the APPs that you're interacting with every hour. What it amounted to was if a conversation with an APP took 30 seconds, you would spend 25% of your shift talking to the APP just about how many minutes did you spend with Mr. Jones in room nine? Oh, you had 14, I had 16, okay. I had the majority of the clinical care time. In the acute episodic unscheduled care environment of the emergency department, using time is simply not practical. It's not actually even doable. In fact, I think it's not possible. And ultimately CMS seemed to hear us and they've delayed the implementation of this time requirement now at least through the end of 2024, and they dropped some hints that it might be going on for a longer period of time. So then we have to turn to, well, what is the standard for a shared visit where an APP and a physician are both involved in the care of the patient? Who gets to bill and what are the requirements? And the physician would need to perform, this is just a term and that we'll define it, a substantive portion of the medical decision-making. So those, those are just words. What does that really mean? Based on the 2023 documentation guidelines, CPT has outlined and CMS very interestingly in the fee schedule has clearly adopted the CPT standards. So we just have one set of rules now for the split shared visit billing between the physician and the APP. You need to, number one, formulate or approve the plan. Number two, take responsibility for the patient and the risks of the tests and procedures. And then there's some detail related to things that the billing physician would need to do personally if they were to be counted towards the coding, like documenting our own independent interpretations or documenting discussions with consultants. And there are varying standards of documentation what I just reviewed are the performance requirements, and ASEP has actually come up with an attestation to meet those needs and publish it on the ASEP website 
as part of a series of FAQs that are available uh, to the public and, and to all members, just to make sure that you feel like you're hitting all the high points when you're seeing a patient with an APP. And that's an area that I think is a little bit of a higher bar than it was previously, but we did manage to stay away from that really arduous requirement of using time. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think that's a huge win. It's it's so funny when the substantive decision-making language came out that the physician had to take responsibility for you know the, the patient, basically. Like I heard so much griping and concern about uh, liability. They're like, what does this mean for liability? And I, and I think, you know, in my head initially, I was like, well, obviously you're involved with the care. Like, why is that any different in terms of like, well, now you're, you're, now you're just explicitly saying you take responsibility, but it's not like you were ever not taking responsibility. But then I realized that, you know, the way that APPs are, quote, supervised is probably very variable across the country, across the group, at the hospital. Um, do you have any feeling, like I know you're not a lawyer, but like any feeling on if there is a liability change for the supervising doctor now that those words are explicitly said for billing purposes? I think in a shared visit, the bill is going out under the physician's name when you meet these certain criteria. Mm -hmm. And so you were involved in the care, you signed the record, and the bill went out under your name. I think it's pretty hard to distance yourself from any uh, unexpected processes that, that come up. That being said, as a bedside clinician, I sort of feel a little bit the sting of, I take responsibility. It feels like you're really putting yourself out there uh, you know, for an unfair process to potentially unfold based on you know, the, the very aggressive at times liability attorneys. Um, so I think we were in the case already. It was billed under our name, but it really does sort of hit home on a personal level that statement of I take responsibility. And I'm I'm not a lawyer, as you said, and I'm not uh, a malpractice expert, but it might encourage an unfair process that you know might otherwise sort of uh, not get traction. It's one more fact that is transferring the responsibility more fully to the shoulders of the bedside and billing physician. Yeah, and I, I like the way you frame that um, because I, I'm with you. I'm like, it's not like it didn't exist, but you know, there's a sting, there's a sting. So I think, you know, time will tell. Um, the, the other piece, I think, of both your article and just the new fee schedule that I thought was also worth mentioning was telemedicine, not because ER necessarily does that much telemedicine, but we, we certainly see the effects of it. I would love to hear what your experience is over at Logix, you know, just as an expert in terms of, you know, what is telemedicine in emergency medicine? You know, what does that look like? Like in terms of phone, video, you know, is it APPs and residents, but then physicians are remote? Like, I would love to just kind of hear your thoughts on that and what the reimbursement um, uh, rules have, have said. Yeah, that's a great topic, Amy. Thanks thanks for bringing it up. And we have an entire lecture devoted to it at the ASAP Reimbursement Conference for, for just that reason. It's an area that's of interest, uh, particularly to larger physician groups, larger health systems, where they have the infrastructure to build out a telemedicine process. And I'm seeing it used with our groups in many, many ways. One way is just billing it fee for service. Another way that's been very successful is if you have eight or 10 or 12 hospitals within a system 
and you have a telemedicine war room and you're able to use that for virtual triage and load balancing, that can be phenomenally helpful in reducing any left without being seen or sort of other sort of congestion issues that are taking place in the department. Sort of focusing on the fee schedule and what's required to bill. Uh, one, the first is, you brought this up, how do we define telemedicine? So telemedicine requires for Medicare real-time audio and video. So it's not a phone and it's not asynchronous, it's real-time audio and video. And there were a few things that had to line up in order to bill for emergency department services using ED codes. And all of those things remain lined up through at least the end of 2024. So the ED codes, 99281 through 99285, even critical care, they are approved through the end of 2024 for telemedicine. There are also two waivers required and they remain in place until the end of 2024. The Patient previously had to be in what's called a health professional shortage area, and they can be any place in the country. So there's no geographic restrictions until the end of 2024. And previously they couldn't even be in their home, which seems sort of antithetical. Like if <laughs> I was a patient in a rural area and I needed cardiology telemedicine services, I would get in my car and I'd drive to my internist office that would then have me interface with some clunky hardware and software to talk to the cardiologist that's at sort of the big academic medical center. And CMS has realized how um, that really is a process that decreases access to care. And they've extended all of these waivers and the approval of all the codes that we care about until the end of 2024, even though the public health emergency ended May 11th of 2023. And they wanted that extra 18 months to gather data. And usually what CMS does is they gather data and then through rulemaking processes like the 2025 rule that we'll maybe be talking about a year from now, they will decide whether to continue their approval for certain things. And right now it looks like the ED codes will remain approved, certainly for the remainder of this year. And I think there's a possibility going forward as, as well. With regard to residents, it's interesting. Previously, the residency had to be located in, this is very technical, a metropolitan statistical area, the residency had to be outside of. So you had to be in an area that didn't have a population density of either 50 or 100,000 uh, patients within the urban confines. And that was a very small number of residencies throughout the country. And the fee schedule right now has liberalized that. And telemedicine is really available across all residency sites. Now, the usefulness of the telemedicine is a little bit eh, because on one hand, if the physician attending is on the hospital campus, that's not even telemedicine. They can interact in a virtual fashion into the room and be in a call room, be in a telemedicine war room, be someplace on the hospital campus. That's not even telemedicine. That's just a technology enabled visit. But mm -hmm. if the physician is off campus, then in a teaching setting, what Medicare is now looking for is a three-way Medicare telehealth visit. And that means the patient is at home, the resident is interacting with the patient via telemedicine, and the attending is interacting with the patient via telemedicine. And that's just not very common. So I don't know that it's adding a whole lot, but that allowance of the attending physician being on campus and using technology to interact with the patient, I think that's helpful. 
and that's you know that's continued with the APPs now we're sort of down in the weeds the physician fee schedule from last year and reiterated this year only one provider needs to be face to face with the patient and it doesn't have to be the billing provider so you don't really need telemedicine you can use telemedicine but the APP can see the patient face to face and the attending physician could be someplace else in the department maybe there's someplace else uh, on on campus and then they have an interaction with the patient using technology that's that's totally fine um and that that probably will remain acceptable uh you know for the long term so a lot of interesting things yeah i know it kind of sounds like it's almost like hey it should this telemedicine platform is mostly geared towards attendings like it seems like that's the most efficient least complicated it's the one that makes sense um it's unfortunate that it does sound like you know cms is kicking kicking the can down the road for the year and being like, hey, let's reassess the waivers rather than make things permanent. But like, do you have any ideas on what this means for the future of telemedicine and especially in the ER? Like, I think it's just interesting um, what it could mean for our field if it is reimbursed more permanently. CMS definitely has an interest in the expansion of telemedicine. What they're trying to balance is unfettered budgetary increase in cost and vulnerabilities of the Medicare trust fund to unscrupulous activity. And they love the access that telemedicine provides and live a little bit in fear of the increased cost that goes with that access and mm -hmm. definitely mm -hmm. are cognizant of the potential for uh, unscrupulous actors to abuse the telemedicine process. And it's already a focus of the various enforcement agencies. So they're trying to balance all those. And that's why you're seeing that sort of, you know, using your words, kick the can or very incremental approach where they gather data, maybe they do some audits here and there, they see how comfortable they are, they wanna have more access, but they don't wanna have infinite more cost. And they're gonna go bit by bit. I think it's gonna be a slow process. If you're interested in telemedicine for your department, I don't know that billing the fee-for-service component, billing Medicare is really the answer. The best answer seems to be right now, creating efficiencies in medium and large health systems where you have three, five, seven, ten 10 emergency departments with load balancing and virtual triage so that you can keep your EDs running a little bit more harmoniously without these huge volume spikes and need to move providers around. Instead, you the patients remain in the same place and you've got maybe one, maybe two providers in a telemedicine central location that can really help when you're running five to 10 emergency departments. And we've got, got a lot of groups doing that successfully. Yeah, I think the question is throughput and then how do you utilize this to help throughput in addition to all of the other issues <laughs> in throughput that I know plagues us all. Um, well, Mike, I, I, like to me, that kind of feel felt like at least the two really big pieces that affect emergency medicine doctors for the new fee schedule. Anything you want to add? Yeah, there were a couple of nice uh, gifts in in the fee schedule. One was the clear retirement of appropriate use criteria. I think those of us in the health policy and reimbursement world always felt that the appropriate use criteria based on the Intala requirements in the emergency department really didn't apply to us. But many hospitals had unreasonably applied 
very, very arduous workflows where we were kind of forced to go through clinical decision tools in order to order complex imaging when we probably weren't required to. And those should now all go away. They should all sunset. And the wording that CMS used in the fee schedule related to appropriate use criteria, it sounds like it's just gone. It's not sunsetted or kicked the can down the road. It sounds like it just sort of retired. So I, I thought that was a really nice piece of news. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And now, um, you know, you and I were kind of chatting before about like market dynamics and different groups and stuff. I, I think we have a pretty diverse um, audience of people at, you know, the big uh, public publicly traded groups, you know, smaller groups, small democratic groups, some rural, some locums. Um, any last thoughts, I think, just for the audience that would be all encompassing about the RVU changes or just words of advice of how to handle this next year when it comes to fee-for-service? I think in the fee-for-service world, we're feeling a lot of pressure. So we're feeling pressure in areas that we didn't talk about related to contracting and the No Surprises Act. Mm -hmm. We're feeling pressure related to the conversion factor and the RVUs are stable. So I think the thing to do is to get with your informatics doc, just like you, and liaison them with your coding experts to make sure that your templated process supports all of the complex work that you're already performing at the bedside. I think that's one of the key areas. The other one is it's really using that restaurant analogy. We need to keep turning the tables in our restaurant. And many of us are plagued by really challenging boarding issues. And that has really a, a, an almost head wall of economic impact that's hard to get past. And putting effort into resolving your boarding issues is both a quality of life and an anti-burnout antidote, but it really reaps very significant financial rewards as well. Because it doesn't matter how good you code and document and bill and contract and, but if your 50 bed ED is only 28 beds and you can only see one patient an hour, then you're really financially hampered when you're staffed to see two patients an hour. And I think that's a future challenge that we're all continuing to work through in the post-COVID world. Yeah, absolutely. And Mike, I kind of just love your holistic view of this, like not only from a reimbursement perspective, but, you know, some of the realities of yeah, Drupa and how that clearly affects um, things as well as the court advocacy. So I want to say thank you again for coming on and joining us and giving us your expertise. Um, I encourage everyone to check out the uh, article, which is already live online, and is of course in the magazine as well in your mailboxes. It's called Medicare's Reimbursement Updates for 2024. And again, friend to ASAP Now, um, also president of Logix Health, is uh, Mike Granovsky with us. Thanks again. Amy, thank you. I had a great time chatting with Dr. Gronofsky on what can be an extremely complicated topic, but one that I think is so important to understand. Now, he did a great job touching on history of how it is that we got where we are, and then also, I think, the key component of advocacy. And while we touched on it briefly, I wanted to explicitly say that. Advocacy is so important to every doctor because it drives what we can or can't do at the bedside, whether we like it or not. 
Now, advocacy drives everything from what measures CMS is tracking to what insurers may be reimbursing to, of course, all of the reimbursement rules by CMS that we discuss. And again, that all drives how we practice medicine. So I think that's a reality of life that we probably need to accept. And so you can choose to get involved or you can choose not to, but it wouldn't be, I think, right for me to not mention that that is one of the huge benefits of a major organization like ASEP. For everything from their lobby days to their leadership and advocacy conference every May to the dollars that they make sure are being directed to medicine-friendly candidates to being, you know, experts in giving advice and policies when there are issues in Congress that need to be spoken about from the voice of emergency medicine. All of these make sure that the practice of medicine that we sometimes get a little forced into, let's say, Um, are reflective of what we actually believe is right and good for our specialty and also for our patients. So I very much urge you all to get involved. ASAP, again, is a great place to do that for emergency medicine. There's, of course, state-level chapters as well, as well as general um, organized medicine that exists that you can check out, but all a good place to get engaged. Now, that's it for us this month, but it doesn't mean there's not tons more in the magazine. Among it, we have a feature on the saga of the Corpus Christi residency at Christus that was closing and then actually reopened. We also have a feature on hospital closures by Dr. Harry Severance, and I mentioned both of these because I think workforce and market dynamics will be a huge topic this year. We already saw it start, I think, last summer with Envision and APP's closures. However, we're really still seeing a lot of the market dynamics that have influenced those groups and how the other groups have shaken out since then. So I think 2024 might even optimistically be the year that emergency medicine kind of takes back medicine from, you know, corporations and business. Now, we also have a great feature on AI. AI is all the rage, especially with last year's release of ChatGBT. And there's a great discussion on AI in the ED and ethical issues that arise. And of course, we have tons of clinical pearls. There's a couple articles on urinary tension, a great zebra case on lead poisoning, key drug interactions with Dr. Hellman, and much, much more. So as always, tweet us if you have an idea at ASAPNow, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. And again, thank you all for joining, and we will see you all next time.